Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but is composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. Today on Layer Zero, we are talking to Santiago Siri, otherwise known as Santi.eth on Twitter. And Santiago has been a community leader in the Argentina space for as long as I've been in crypto. While he doesn't currently live in Argentina, he still spends a ton of his mental energy and attention there. Santi was recently with Vitalik as Vitalik went around Argentina and experiencing what Argentina is like now that crypto has truly entered the Argentine space. And Argentina has always had this very involved story with crypto. Argentina is a very internet connected nation with high inflation and high capital controls and also a very strong developer community. And so it's kind of this perfect breeding ground for a crypto society. They actually need crypto for the reasons that crypto is useful in the first place. And it has just an internet fluent society that really allows that expression, that need of crypto to really manifest. And so Santi tells the story of more or less the fall of Argentina from a burgeoning metropolis in the late 80s and 90s down to just a very cutthroat society because of the role of inflation and the loss of savings by so many people in the country. Also the introduction of just corruption from the government and capital controls. And now what is perhaps going to be the other side of that story as crypto enters the scene. And Santi tells a story of how it's not how we know America or maybe the rest of the world where you have society and then you have the crypto people. Santi tells a story of how Argentina is becoming a crypto enabled society, all of them. And so it made me very, very interested in going down to Argentina myself and experiencing that for myself. And just to see what a society looks like when everyone is on board with the whole crypto thing. And so I really enjoyed this conversation with Santi, and I'm sure you are going to as well. So we'll get right into that conversation right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need L2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest and cheapest and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about the long wait times or high fees to get your assets back to the Layer 1. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic Oracle to securely transfer tokens from Layer 2 back to Ethereum. Across is critical ecosystem infrastructure and ownership is being handed over to the community. You can be a part of this story of Across by joining the Discord and becoming a co-founder and helping to design the fair, fair launch of Across. If you want to bridge your assets quickly and securely, go to across.to to bridge your assets between ETH Optimism, Arbitrum, or Boba Networks. Polygon is Ethereum's largest and most vibrant scaling solution to date. With millions of monthly users and all of the biggest DeFi apps, the Polygon ecosystem has turned into a blossoming metropolis of DeFi activity. Transactions on Polygon are quick and cheap, allowing users the freedom to achieve their DeFi goals, all while being economically anchored to Ethereum. But Polygon isn't just the proof of stake sidechain. The Polygon team is building a suite of scaling solutions, including Polygon Hermes, Maiden, Nightfall, and Zero, all with different design choices in order to be optimized for all possible crypto use cases. If you're a developer who wants to build on the Polygon ecosystem, go to the link in the show notes to check out their fantastic documentation. And if you're a user who just wants to experience fast and cheap DeFi, you can bridge over your ETH or other tokens and start playing around with any of the thousands of applications that are available on Polygon.
If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi without giving up custody over your private keys. MetaMask is both a secure in-browser wallet and also a secure bridge for your hardware wallet. You can now trade tokens on any DEX or aggregator. MetaMask Swap gathers real-time pricing information across all the DeFi exchanges, allowing you to select your best price while getting all the MetaMask benefits of self-custody, lower gas costs, and increased transaction success rates. MetaMask also has a fantastic mobile wallet that I use when I'm out and about which I use to collect PO apps, NFTs, and do all my DeFi things while I'm away from home. If you haven't downloaded MetaMask, you gotta try it out. Web3 wouldn't be the same without it. Download MetaMask for desktop and mobile at metamask.io and load up your Trezor, Ledger, Lattice, or Keystone hardware wallets so that they too can get into the world of Web3. Hey, Santi. How's it going? Hey, David. All good. How are you? Good. Fantastic. We've been around each other's periphery for a really long time now. And uh, I think that this is going to be the first time where we're going to have a very long, in-depth conversation. So I'm excited to unpack a bunch of interesting stuff. Well, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's true. We, we've probably seen each other across many conferences uh, around the world, and we follow each other's steps on, on Twitter and social media. So it's good to, to finally get to know each other a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That's exactly what these Layer Zeros are for. I use them as a tool to get to know the people that I want to know better but then also do that in public so other people can get to know you. So my first question for you is, Santi, what do you care about? Wow, that's a good good uh, icebreaker right there. <laughs> you know, I, I come from Argentina, uh, which is a developing country. Argentina has this tragic story of being 100 years ago, probably one of the wealthiest nations out there, getting a lot of, a lot of immigrants from Spain, from Italy, from all over the world and during the First World War and even during the Second World War. And uh, something happened in the country, something broke, something stopped working the way it did a hundred years ago. And now it's a suffering Latin American country, a developing nation struggling from one economic crisis to the next one, with 50% of the people living under the, the poverty line, with a high inflation, with a broken economic system, with very corrupt politicians. And... My quest with technology uh, throughout my career uh, has always been trying to figure out what we can do uh, with digital technology, with information technology that can help improve people's lives. Uh, in Argentina and in Latin America, really, inequality is very visible, very rampant all over the place. And uh, the one thing that I've seen change the world, change reality, change the way I live it, change the way my community lives, uh, in a positive way, has never been the politicians or, you know, the, the next leader or the next great charismatic figure out there, but has always been technology. Like I've seen throughout my life, I, I'm almost 40 years old, I'm 38, and I've seen the rise of personal computing in the 80s and 90s. I've seen the emergence of the internet in the late 90s and 2000s. And now with the blockchain and Ethereum, it's like um, this thing that keeps on unfolding in front of our very eyes. And uh, it has a tremendous promise to impact countries like mine that are desperately looking for an alternative because none of the existing systems, uh, none of the existing monetary systems, the dollar, whatever it, you may, you know, whatever it is, they don't work anymore over there. And uh, I guess like my common denominator across the many projects that I have been involved with, some, some projects with a connection to politics, other projects with a connection to crypto. In a, in a prior life, I was uh, into game development. 
the mo one common denominator is use technology to help improve people's lives, to, to improve people's, uh, you know, have an impact in people's pockets directly, like no, no strings attached. I think technology can be such a disruptive force in, in a region like Latin America, where, you know, we, we definitely are desperate for alternatives because nothing of the traditional sort has worked for us. So when I think about why I choose the projects I choose or why I work on what I work on, mostly has to do with this memory of growing up in Latin America and you know, trying to figure out how to improve society around me. You were born and raised in Argentina. That was where your childhood was? Yes, in Buenos Aires. Uh, I lived there almost yeah. 30 years. What was it like growing up there? Because as I've come to know Argentina, I've known it as back in the... I think the 70s and the 80s, it was just a burgeoning metropolis of just agriculture and just really good food and culture. What was it like growing up there before things broke? So I'm, I was born in 1983. And in 83 is when democracy got uh, restarted in, in Argentina. You know, we, we've been a democracy since then. So I lived in democratic Argentina mostly. The chapter prior to that, the dictatorship we have, from 76 to 83 has been a very brutal and a very violent event in the country, uh, with uh, 30,000 people being disappeared by the government, a uh, brutal, I don't know, we could call it a civil war between right, uh, you know, fascists and, and, and left-wing guerrillas uh, that were, you know, making terrorist attempts and killing each other. So I appeared in the country right when the country finally, after the Falklands War, the Falklands Malvinas War, I should say, uh, right after the country got back its democracy. And even though we became a democratic country, Argentina, I would say it's still a very democratic country where you, when you look, go through the options that you have to vote, you will find options on the extreme left, on the extreme right, and a lot of in the middle. And those options, they all get votes. It's not like uh, there is a lack of representation in the ideological terms. But from an economic standpoint, uh, in the 80s, we had hyperinflation. Uh, in 89, 1990, uh, I was six, seven years old back then, but prices changed every day. Like the inflation rate was 5,000% a year. This means that you know, the prices that you have for products on a given day, the next day, supermarkets, uh, companies, everyone had to price everything again. And it was, that led to a huge crisis, big economic crisis that led to the first president, Alfonsín, to not finish his, his presidency. And eventually in the 1990s, another guy came along called Carlos Menem, who ruled Argentina for 10 years. And Carlos Menem kind of figured out how to fight inflation. He semi-dollarized the economy. He made a, a law that one, one Argentine peso should equal one US dollar and develop a strong connection to the US. This is after the Berlin Wall fell, so probably the world became more Americanized after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So most of my childhood and teenage years were during that epoch. And uh, in that period, the problem was not inflation anymore, but it was unemployment. Because buying US dollars suddenly was very cheap in Argentina, that meant that imports uh, were very cheap rather than you know, producing stuff in the country. So a lot of factories, a lot of uh, companies had to close doors because it was simply cheaper to import goods from, from abroad. And uh, that's like the tragedy of Argentina. You, know, you go from 
dealing with huge inflation and then you're dealing with huge unemployment. And it doesn't seem like we're able to find like a middle ground in the way we do things. And that has led to, I think in, in Argentina, in the context of Latin America, has always been very good at generating very skilled entrepreneurs, very resilient entrepreneurs. I remember the, the dot-com years. I was already a teenager when I had internet access for the first time, broadband access later on. In the late 90s, Argentina was able to produce some of the largest e-commerce companies, if not the largest e-commerce company in Latin America. That has been a common denominator of Argentine entrepreneurs being able to capture the Latin American market, basically because Brazil speaks another language and it has a huge domestic market, so they don't care what happens outside Brazil. And Mexico has a lot of the talent uh, actually going to the U.S. because it's right there. So Argentina uh, always strategically had a very strong position of generating good entrepreneurs and building technology that historically has been a leader in the region, a leader in in Latin America. And I think our history of knowing that we're dealing with a very broken economic system, that we we will deal with inflation, we will deal with with a lot of kinds of bizarre crises that you 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 cannot even imagine, but it's a country that is constantly under, you know, whenever I talk to my mom today, I ask her, well, how's Argentina doing? And she tells me, worse than ever before. And that's always her answer for the last seven years since I left the country. <laughs> and it's always like getting worse and worse. But at the end of the day, that has led to the, like, the Argentine people to be very resilient, very resourceful, very entrepreneurial, very capable of thinking outside the box. And... Um, I was lucky enough that I grew up with a family that gave me a good education. I was able to travel around the world to visit Europe or visit the U.S. when I was a child. And that helped certainly helped open up my mind in a great way and that had a lasting impact in my life. And that's why I'm probably talking to you here in English or I developed a career more more internationally. But uh, when I look back at the country, its people are, are, are amazing. Like it's an incredible bunch of creative lateral thinkers that can come up with incredible solutions. You know, fast forward to today, I see it in the crypto community in Argentina. A lot of the innovation being built around Ethereum, being built around Bitcoin, a lot of the the minds that are emerging from, from Argentina, engineers, developers, hackers, entrepreneurs, are simply brilliant by any international measure. And this is literally the children of hyperinflation, the children of, uh, you know, the convertibility that led to huge unemployment in the 90s. You know, I wish we could find a formula for our country. We always tell, say, tell ourselves that we are a country of individuals who are very good at the individual level, but probably not so good at the community or team level. Like collectively, we don't seem to work efficiently. We cannot even manage our own country. But individually, you know, we produce probably the best soccer players in the world or we produce great entrepreneurs that whenever they have to go abroad, they become very successful. But internally in the country, it's like a messed up place. And, uh, you know, it's always a challenge. But uh, it's the place I was born and the place I love. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of fantastic things about our culture and, you know, how we treasure friendship or how we connect with other people that it's something really special. I want to definitely have this individual versus collective 
theme is one of the crux of this conversation. But in order to get there, I want to keep on unpacking some of the, just the originating influences of Argentina. The thing I want to learn the most right now is what was the order of operations for this like change in Argentina? I think inflation is at the very beginning of the story, but what caused inflation? Like what was the original thing that started this cascading set of events? Well, it's um, inflation has always been a constant. I, you know, there depends on who you ask, you will get different answers to this question for sure. You know, there, there'll be, be the monetarists that will tell you is, uh, you know, they are printing and printing and printing money. And that's probably maybe the case. Uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, in the eighties when we had hyperinflation, the only solution that the government could come up with was let's just print more money and that led to a disaster. Then there could be, you know, there are other factors in place as well. This kind of Argentina is a country very much dependent on commodity prices. Uh, our biggest export is soy uh, and soy prices go up, they go down. When there are, you know, good years, Argentina has a lot of reserves. When there are bad years, uh, the country is about to explode in a, in a crisis. So, and, and, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, simply playing the media, playing politics behind people's, you know, uh, interests. It's a bit of a tragic consequence. We're still, you know, dealing with that today. Over the last 20 years, Argentina, again, when the convertibility or the, you know, the ability to convert US dollars to pesos one to one, when that economic project ended, we went back to an inflationary model and uh, the currency has systematically lost its value 200 times. So in the 90s, it was one peso, one dollar. When that ended in 2001, we had a huge crisis. And now we're back to 200 pesos, one dollar. Like suddenly our currency lost 200 times its value in the last 20 years. You know, the, the economic factors, the external factors probably has to do with commodity prices and, and macro variables like that. And from the internal standpoint, because the country has such, has a lot of, a, I would say like, uh, humanitarian problems. Like uh, if you walk through the streets of Buenos Aires, and actually we did this with Vitalik, there are some huge slums in the middle of the most wealthy neighborhoods in the city. So you have this huge inequality in the country. With Vitalik, we actually visited one of these slums so he could get a, a close view of you know how a lot of people live in a country like Argentina, not just the tourist version of the country. And you see this inequality all over the place. Um, there's uh, five, more than 5,000 slums where people do not have access to basic goods, to basic water, to basic uh, needs. They might have, you know, the youth smartphones and an internet connection. Uh, so the people are connected, but like infrastructure is simply not there. And sadly, the many populist politicians their only solution or, or the only remedy to uh, address a situation like that is let's just put uh, you know, money in their pockets, uh, regardless of taking any consideration of how that money is created, they just print it. And that, that populist formula uh, you know, works for a little while and then in the long run generates this situation of the country losing value significantly. And you know, it's simply a very tragic consequence because it perpetuates the position people are living in, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of investment. Uh, it perpetuates the inequality. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it, because the inequality keeps growing, people keep, you know, politicians keep printing. And the more they print, the more the status quo remains it's the same. And there's simply, it seems to me that at least from the generations above me, you know, that they, 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 they govern the country in the past, 
they are simply not able to think outside the box. The discussion in Argentina has always been, shall we agree with the IMF and get some US dollars to strengthen our currency, but get a huge debt and the debt keeps growing with the IMF? Or uh, we give our back to the IMF and suddenly we become a pro-Venezuela, pro-Cuba country, disconnected from the financial world. You know, we try to do the revolution, quote unquote. None of these approaches are really, you know, addressing people's problems, addressing the, the situation from a structural or from a systemic uh, point of view. It's just opportunist uh, populist politicians taking advantage and misusing uh, public resources, you know, regardless of the ideological sign of who is in charge. You know, I think that today we have, there's a generational change, at least the, the crypto generation or the online generation. Let's not call them millennials. You know, we have the online generation, the offline generation. The online generation is growing up. You know, I'm, I'm probably one of the oldest members of that generation, but there's a lot of kids from, you know, between 20 and 30 years old that are now suddenly uh, thinking in a much different way about money, about uh, value, about, uh, you know, connected to the world, uh, looking, you know, realizing that Argentina is not a special case in the planet, that, you know, we, we, we can certainly think globally and connect with, with the world at large. And there's a new generation that I hope starts thinking about these issues uh, in a different way. I see it in the development front, the developer community, the, soft, the hackers, the, the software developers, are certainly innovating in a way that has no precedent in the country. For the first time, there are projects being born in Argentina that are global, that are not looking at Latin America as a market, but are actually thinking in global terms. There's a generation of engineers that have created some of the most successful companies built around Ethereum, thinking about you know, crypto and technology uh, as a way of addressing some of the challenges that society is facing. And, you know, I recently visited Argentina just a few weeks ago for Vitalik's trip there. And uh, I haven't been there since before the pandemic. And it, it was kind of like suddenly uh, getting into a, like the Back to the Future's car and actually traveling to the year 2034 because it really felt very futuristic. Everyone under 30 years old recognized Vitalik in the streets. They knew who he was. They knew about Ethereum. They asked him about Ethereum 2.0 or you know, when is the merge going to happen? Like random people in the streets. Oh, most of them obviously under probably under 30 years old. But it's like uh, in the pandemic, a lot of people suddenly accelerated their learning skills about crypto or got into crypto. In Argentina, we have uh, high inflation, capital controls. It's, it's illegal to buy US dollars, even though there's a black market of it, and we have uh, subsidized energy. So everyone and their mothers are mining crypto. They're having miners at home. Like, uh, it's almost insane. You, you, you see that like, in the restaurant where we were with Vitalik, the waiter came to ask him for a picture. Taxi driver asked him things about crypto. Suddenly Vitalik discovered that he has Mick Jagger status in Argentina. And I think that the pandemic accelerated people learning about this technology. The bull market also you know, benefited a lot of people. And suddenly there's, like, I perceive for the first time a new generation in Argentina that it's uh, really connected to this stuff in a way that is way more significant than what I see here in Spain, where I live. 
In Spain, it's a, you know, it's the Euro comfort zone. The welfare state works fantastic. People live a very secure life. They, they are, everyone is in a comfort level that they are not, not anyone, no one is taking any risks in Europe, uh, in Spain. Like very, there's very few entrepreneurs, very few crypto mines. Whereas in Argentina, it's like everywhere. You see it in the billboards in the streets. There's, uh, the, you know, the most important streets are filled with advertisement about crypto startups and crypto companies. I feel like the country is like making a leapfrog after the pandemic in adoption, not only at the developer level, which is what I knew, but what caught me by surprise is that at the user level, we're seeing this kind of uh, popular adoption of Ethereum and Bitcoin and all of this new tech. To me, that speaks greatly about what crypto is achieving, because from a geopolitical standpoint, Argentina is, you know, at the end of the world. It's a, a forgotten country, third world nation struggling through financial crisis to financial crisis. And in the last seven years, I've been pretty much in over 30 countries following the Ethereum crowd, following you know the, this revolution around the world. And the fact that Argentina is suddenly growing in adoption so aggressively speaks greatly of crypto, speaks greatly of this technology, because it means that uh, the technology is being impacting the most where it's really needed the most. In Argentina, it's not a theoretical quirk to learn about crypto or an investment opportunity. It's, for a lot of people, a necessity. They need it. They can't buy dollars. They are filled with pesos that are worthless. They need this thing. To me, that gives me a lot of hope about the future of the country. Uh, the past of the country is a disaster, like I told you. But it's still a great country with great people. And I think that this new generation, or what crypto is doing there, it's a very fertile ground for this technology. And some years ago, it was still a thing of us, the nerds, you know? But today, you know, it's on mainstream media. When Vitalik was there, you turn on the TV in Argentina, every news show was talking about this guy. That was a, a revelation. Probably to Vitalik, discovering that he'll probably be facing this more and more in, in the future, anywhere he goes. So dealing with his celebrity status will be a challenge for him, but I, I think he, he will do fantastic because he's a... He's simply an amazing human being. He's a monk that travels around the world with his backpack, speaking the word, you know, preaching the truth. But for Argentina, it was a, like a big epiphany for society. Like suddenly everyone was like, hey, you're into crypto? I'm into crypto also, like everyone. I'm a public figure there in crypto scene and whatnot. And I realized that, like the, the amount of messages and DMs and, and emails and phone calls that I got since since that trip is beyond my traditional level of uh, information diet. It gives me the signal that there's something very serious brewing up there, and it's coming, you know, from the youth, bottom up. It's not like the El Salvador case where you know El Salvador got lucky enough to have a millennial president, and this guy, sadly, he's kind of a maximalist, but he's pushing Bitcoin through everyone's throats top down. In Argentina, it's bottom-up adoption. No, and with Vitalik, we have been able to meet with an ex-president, with a potential future president, uh, with the government, uh, with a you know, left-wing activist. We met with a whole spectrum of uh, leaders that the country has. Everyone left aside their differences. That's the power that Vitalik had. I don't think uh, many people in the world can unite Argentines like Vitalik did. And it's because everyone is realizing that there's this thing happening with the new generations that is uh, very wild, very wild. That gives me hope, you know. <laughs>
The last little bit of context I want to unpack before getting even more into the crypto conversation is the um, the background around the government and the people's trust or lack of trust in the government. My general understanding of the Argentine government was that at one point in time, it was democracy with its feet under itself, making progress, and then corruption kind of took over, perhaps around the same time that inflation did. My general gut take was that people were optimistic about the future of Argentine leadership, but when the going got tough, it got really hard for people to think in the long term. And so the incentive for corruption started to outweigh the incentive to actually build stuff. Can you kind of just like walk us through um, the progression of people's trust in the government and the progression of corruption in Argentina? Yeah, it's uh, I can tell you what I witnessed, uh, you know, living there. Inflation is a terrible thing, like really terrible. Because it, it's like uh, the fable of the boiling frog. Like you don't realize how terrible it is until it's too late. The thing about inflation, like in Argentina, everyone now is used to 50% of annual inflation. You know, compare that to America, 6% recently reported. Yeah, we were in the 6% level probably 15 years ago. And suddenly, you know, all hell broke loose. And that leads to situations like if you're a business owner, you will have to renegotiate salaries every three months or every six months. And it's a very uncomfortable, unpleasant conversation to renegotiate salaries with the people who are working uh, for you and, and who are like building this thing with you. Yeah, every three or six months, uh, you have to renegotiate salaries all over again, having this unpleasant conversation, this friction between you know, the management and the workers. And this generates a very aggressive culture, a culture where people don't treat each other nicely. Argentines are known to be very, very aggressive. I have many theories about that, but inflation certainly permeates our culture. Another reason might be that we eat a lot of meat. <laughs> I once tweeted this on, on Twitter and I received a thousand replies of people like trash talking me and insulting me. Kind of proving my point <laughs> of how <laughs> how we are with the, you know with in, in, in a level of aggression. I realize this more and more the more I live abroad. The red meat turns into testosterone. Yeah, like just compare us with India. Like India, no one eats meat, and they seem more chill than us. In Argentina, <laughs> you will eat meat for breakfast, you will eat meat for lunch, you will eat meat at dinner. It's a carnivore country, maybe even a bit cannibal. I would say uh, we eat our own. So uh, it's um, inflation definitely like generates a, an aggressive culture, and uh, the distrust. When we had the convertibility in the '90s, which was one peso, one dollar, and it was a law, and no one could print any pesos without packing that up with U.S. dollars, that worked very well for a few years. It had the rising issue of unemployment. There was a lot of corruption during those years. And uh, when the tide changed globally, either commodity prices went down or we started, you know, at the end of the day, the policy of the U.S. dollar is mandated by a single country, you know, the United States. So whenever the United States changes its policy, suddenly Argentina has no maneuver over that. There were some crises, you know, mild financial crisis happening in the late 90s. And that led to, you know, countries like Argentina suddenly, you know, losing economic capacity, uh, losing, uh, you know, the ability to produce, the ability to do a lot of things. And that led to a situation where our reserves almost dried out. The IMF was not going to lend us any money. The Twin Towers attack, 9-11 happened. So that definitely shut the doors of the IMF. Like there was simply no consideration for what's going on in Argentina when 9-11 happened. 
And right after 9-11 happened, we started receiving funds from the U.S. The banks uh, suddenly closed the, you know, you were only able to retire from the bank $250 per week. Uh, that was the, the, the cap of how much money you were able to retire from the bank. When that got announced, a bank run happened. Uh, people took the streets. Uh, they took their, you know, their uh, kitchen instruments and they started like going to the banks and asking for their, their savings back. And of course, the savings never came back. Government changed. We had five presidents in one week and a guy came that said, now it's going to be four pesos, one dollar. The currency got devaluated, you know, Forex in one day. People lost their savings, their life savings in a dramatic way. And that has led to everyone simply distrusting banks. Never keep your money in the bank. In Argentina, for example, if you want to buy a, a home, you want to buy an apartment or you want to buy a car, you don't do a bank transfer. You don't do a wire transfer. No one has their money in the bank. You go with a backpack or some, you know, something that might not be too flashy and you just keep the stash of US dollars. You know, you go to a private meeting, someone will count the US dollars, you know, everyone will count them. Once you make sure the money is right, the PBO is a cash transaction. Buying an apartment in Argentina is unbelievably a cash transaction. More recently, has been there, there have been crypto transactions, but uh, until very recently, 100% of the apartments in Argentina were bought with cash. That's how much we distrust banks. Uh, because that's the only way you can trust. That's the only way. No one wants their money in the bank. After what happened in 2001, no one wants to keep their money in the bank. This is another consequence, very tragic consequence. A lot of people keep their money at home. Like they literally keep the piles of cash under the mattress or hidden somewhere at home. And that leads to a lot of robbers and thieves suddenly trying to enter your home and, and you know, kidnap you and try to steal your money. Because everything is a honeypot. Yeah, it's a honeypot. And there were a lot of kidnapping events uh, in a, in a, during a moment where you know, it was very common. It was called express kidnapping, sequestro express. Like it even had branding. Like, oh, another, you, you turned on the TV and you saw another episode of express kidnapping happened here. And they tied the person and they stole their money because they, people kept their money at home. They don't want it, uh, want it in the banks. And that leads to a lot of violence, to a lot of violence, like very violent situations, very violent country. It's incredible what a lack of good governance can do to a country. Argentina is like, has every, checks every mark of everything done uh, the wrong way. And it's, a, it's really a very sad thing. That's why today the country is suffering. Uh, uh, a lot of people live, are leaving. Like people like me left the country. Uh, people that are, you know, young, they're starting their families, or they want to, you know, the world has become much smaller in the, you know, in the past decades. It's much easier to live abroad today than ever before. And a lot of you know, people that, you know, want to pursue a career that came out of the university, that want to become an entrepreneur, they just are going to try the, you know, to do it abroad. And the country is losing a lot of bright minds. It's like the, the ripple effect has been tremendous uh, in the country. That's why I don't know how much worse it can get. <laughs> That's my hopeful note there. Like it can't can get any worse than this. You know, there, there has to be a floor at, at a certain point and a bounce eventually happening. I think crypto might help us bounce. How high can we bounce? Well, we'll see. We'll find out in the next couple of decades. I still remain optimistic about what, what can be done. 
I think this story is just a great example of what happens when social systems break down. Bankless listeners will know what line I always say next, where one of my favorite lines out of the Cypherpunk manifesto is that cypherpunks understand that the code they write impacts the people that use it. And code includes things like governments, like democracies, like our constitution, like the protocol for coordination across a country. And I think many, many Bitcoiners always say that like money is at the basement of everything, right? Like if you fix money, you fix everything. Also, if you break money, you break everything. And so these social systems exist on top of the money that we use. What I'm seeing is that the Argentine money broke down for a handful of reasons, both externally and internally. As a result of that, how far people could extend trust to their neighbors and communities had to contract significantly. It went from a whole entire country down to like, you know, your family, your local family and, and your friends, because that's the only people that you can trust. And you're telling me that like they can't use banks, they can't use the banking network that a social system because the code is broken, right? The government procedures are broken. And so no one can trust that. And so now a culture around Argentina has devolved into just people being able to trust a smaller and smaller sphere of people around them. And I think perhaps why this lends the Argentine people so well into crypto is because crypto, you're not supposed to trust anyone. Like you don't have to trust anyone. And when the volatility of a nation becomes so high with the volatility of money, the value of money is volatile, but also the volatility of imports and exports and just the production and industry, everything is volatile. Individuals learn how to weather that volatility in their own particular way. Maybe that's why like Argentina is such an individualist culture is because the collective has broken down and kind of turned into like more or less every person for themselves. But that has really primed Argentine culture to take advantage of crypto, which crypto really enshrines the sovereignty of the individual and the empowerment of the individual. And so like when you're telling me like in, uh, in order to buy an apartment, you need to show up with a backpack full of cash. Well, there's nothing better as a replacement than that than private keys, right? You can bring private keys in your brain. All of a sudden, that trust is now a new social system and the Argentine people are in need of it the most. When you say that you think that there is like a bounce coming for Argentina, like Argentina is about to hit off of a floor, and we're also seeing the rise of crypto post-COVID, I'm seeing that those things are directly related. The people in Argentina can individually be successful, but they're just looking for systems to allow that individual success to lend itself into collective success. How do you feel about this interpretation? Spot on. To me, it's a very surprising fact that the, you know, the Argentina that I recently discovered when I went back, because I left the country seven years ago. I tried to do things in Argentina that uh, really showed me you know, how broken the country was. I uh, started a political party there that we had the idea 10 years ago. Eh? It's a long time ago already, but we had the idea of having candidates in Congress that would vote every law according to people's uh, vote online. So we had to figure out how to do online democracy and at the same time to do a political party. And long story short, when I got into politics there, it got so nasty so broken, so absurd and, and like people fighting for nothing that when I left the country, I, for three years, I never came back. I was like uh, mad or like, uh, like pissed off. You know, I had enough of this country already. I just want something else. Uh, I went to, you know, I, uh, I got accepted into Y Combinator in 2015 and, and started Democracy Health Foundation. I figured, you know, let's think it's probably easier to fix the world than to fix Argentina. Fast forward to today, uh, turns out that in the last decade, you know, the emergence of Bitcoin, the emergence of Ethereum, 
you know, surprisingly, and not so surprisingly, like it's like a black swan event that kind of makes sense when you look back. Argentina is uh, an incredible fertile ground for this, this kind of technology. And for many years, this was a theory. But now recently, it's like it's actually happening. Probably there's no, not a single politician right now in Congress or, you know, in, in, is, is understands what's going on with crypto. But the people, their families, the community, the entrepreneurs, the developers, the users, it's growing dramatically. And I compare it, you know, I, I lived in the U.S. for five years. I lived in, it's going to be three years now I'm, I've been in Spain. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, America has given me some of the most extraordinary opportunities uh, in my career. In Spain, you know, it's a very comfortable life. Uh, in Europe, it's a very secure place, very stable. Uh, Argentina is wild as fuck. Uh, it has always been like that. <laughs> it's like, what's going to happen now? We, we, we all joke about it also. We have, the one thing that I think has made us very special also in, in this whole context is our sense of humor. We have a, a very uh, strong, powerful, crazy, a little bit insane sense of humor that kind of helps us go through, through our day. And, and with crypto, I, I remember I, I've been involved with the tech scene in, in, in Buenos Aires for many, you know, since I was 15 years old, probably for, for more than 20 years. And I remember in the dot-com years, you know, we had a lot of investment going on, a lot of companies being created. Uh, some of these companies were acquired by American companies and some successful acquisitions, but none of these companies had customers. They all had uh, inflated valuations, crazy valuations, until the bubble bursted and then everything, you know, watered down and, and none of these companies had any real customers. Today, 2022, uh, I walk through the streets of Buenos Aires. I see the advertisements of many crypto companies started in Argentina. Some, uh, you know, some of the international ones are also there. I visited some of these companies and met their entrepreneurs, and they showed me their numbers. And they have, they are selling credit cards that do cashback with crypto. Uh, they are like doubling in sales every three weeks. Uh, they are yeah, the rate of you know the level of customers and adoption is enormous. Uh, everyone is uh, interested and excited about the next thing happening on crypto, like it's, and it's obviously especially the youth that everyone uses e-commerce today. Everyone uses you know they do their groceries and they do everything is on, done online now. Especially after the after COVID, this became much more commonplace in Latin America. E-commerce grew significantly. Everyone uses fintech. But the fintech that uses crypto is destroying the market. It's beating the, the competition, beating the hell out of the competition. Uh, some of these new companies that are doing cashback with Ether or cashback uh, with Bitcoin or connecting their, their bank accounts to, to, to Ethereum or to Lightning Network, like it's really happening. And the numbers are huge. The real customers, real money flowing in. Like it's, it's really happening. And some of these companies have raised tens of millions of dollars. Like emerging markets have become a top thing for, for the Bay Area. So emerging markets combined with crypto is a, an incredible combination. And Argentina is, is leading in that regard, uh, much, much to my surprise. You know, uh, I left the country looking for opportunity abroad. And now that I've been living abroad for almost a decade, I, you know, the thing that I find most interesting going on out there is suddenly my own country, uh, <laughs> where this, this, this boom is happening. It's really impressive what was going on there. So that's why I'm, I'm like, okay, there's a silver lining in all of this. Maybe the country had to go through shit 
in order to be the most apt country for you know leading in, in terms of crypto adoption out there. I'm, I'm very proud to, of the community of developers uh, and, and smart contract engineers that emerged out of Argentina. Some of my colleagues and friends were involved in many of the most uh, relevant projects happening in Ethereum. And to me, it's mind-blowing that these projects uh, came out of guys like me from Argentina. I can mention you, Open Zeppelin, Decentraland, uh, MakerDAO, and the list is really long. So I shouldn't keep on mentioning names because I, can, I have to keep going and going. But it's a long list. It's like this uh, generation of engineers and, and hackers that is kind of like, I think, consciously or unconsciously embracing crypto because... Maybe this can help out our families. Maybe this can help out our community. And the results so far have been very, very good. The project I'm involved with, with that is uh, Proof of Humanity and what we have been doing with UBI, the stories I, I got in the last year uh, with, since we launched the project are, in, are incredible. Like a lot of people, uh, we have definitely our, our biggest base of users is in Argentina and in Latin America. Uh, we have a very large community. And you just hear stories of people that for the first time they installed MetaMask, uh, they went through the whole Web3 initiation process. And, you know, I've seen this firsthand. I, you know, a lot of people installed uh, MetaMask and started using Ethereum and Web3 to get into proof of humanity and start, you know, exp you know getting some UBI and trading an ERC20 for the first time. And a lot of these people came from my social circles, you know, when we were launching the project. And I realized that a lot of them were people that do not come from the nerdy, techie, geeky scene of Buenos Aires. Uh, these were, you know, family members or friends of my my friends or like people that come from much much more diverse backgrounds, but they are into this thing. Uh, to me, it was like suddenly realizing, wow, Ethereum is like kind of growing into the next phase. Strangely enough, like uh, that that wave of adoption. Uh, from, from everyday users is, is coming from countries like mine. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet, the Ledger Live app, and soon the CL Crypto Life card powered by Ledger. The CL card powered by Ledger is a crypto debit card with powerful features like an instant exchange to fiat, where crypto assets are only sold at the moment that you swipe your card, and also credit from crypto collateral, where you can collateralize your crypto assets in order to get a higher credit limit. You'll be able to manage your CL card powered by Ledger inside the Ledger Live app, right next to all the DeFi apps and services that you're already used to using, making the Ledger Live app your one-stop shop for all of your financial needs. Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, and download Ledger Live to get all of your DeFi applications all in one place. Alchemix is a DeFi app that offers self-repaying loans that lets you spend money and save money at the same time. Alchemix allows you to deposit the DAI stablecoin into its vaults, which earns some of the highest yields that DeFi has to offer. You can then take a loan from Alchemix of up to 50% of the deposited DAI, and that loan automatically pays itself back from the yield that is generated from your deposit. It's a savings account that the banks don't want you to know about. Alchemix also has ETH vaults available, so you can get a self-repaying loan that's denominated in ETH. Coming up in Alchemix V2 is a bunch of cool new features such as credit delegation, multi-chain expansion, and DAO revenue sharing and vote boosting. Alchemix lets you get your interest payments on your deposits paid to you upfront. 
Check out the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi and make sure to join their extremely vibrant Discord if you want to participate in governance or have any questions about the project. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Santi, do you think as Argentina adopts crypto more and more and more that the pendulum will swing back into being more of a collectivist society? Or do you kind of think that the Argentines have just mastered being an, an individual and crypto allows just the maximum expression of the individual? Because crypto is a very individual technology. What happens to the culture of Argentines as crypto becomes more and more adopted? What do you think is going to happen? Argentina has always been very individualistic. You know, if I had to say, you know, what kind of country we are, it's a country of individuals for sure. Even though, you know, in the greater context of Latin America, growing up in Latin America, you, you will see, you will find in society, a lot of, a lot of society, maybe even half of society supporting more collectivist uh, ideologies, like the Cuban revolution. You will find uh, half of the people in Argentina probably defending the Cuban revolution or defending uh, Chavez in Venezuela and the other half completely against it. So it's not like, um, even though we're a country of individuals or very good at, at the individual level, ideologically speaking, as a country that has grown in Latin America and in Latin America under the shadow of the United States, I guess some of that reaction against the United States gets channeled through uh, more socialist or, or communist uh, philosophies. Uh, that you will find in the intellectuals or in the uh, journalists or in the, you know, the thinkers of, of the country. So it's not like it's um, Argentina is not turning into Singapore anytime soon. <laughs> it's still a country that you know has has its own struggles, has its own challenges. But I think crypto has the potential to first and foremost empower a new generation and give that new generation a new way about thinking about reality, because usually the youth. When you look at the lens of politics, the youth has been co-opted by the youth of other decades. You know, the people who rule the country now were young in the 70s. And in the 70s, the youth was about uh, doing the revolution, taking the, by force the power and, and installing like the Cuban revolution, some kind of communist nightmare. Uh, they lost that battle in the 70s, but uh, a lot of these people uh, are ruling the country today, like the president and, and the government today has a very heavy influence on their youth in the 70s. So we'll call them setentistas, you know, the people that, and, and they try to, to tell the youth of today that they should be like the youth of that time. And that's so fucked up in, in many ways. Uh, <laughs> the youth of today, the youth of today is the crypto youth. That, that's the thing that I find so exciting. I, when I talk to when we did the Vitalik conference in Buenos Aires, Vitalik arrived on Saturday. On Saturday, he met uh, uh, President Macri, the, an ex-president of the country. You know, uh, half of the country probably loves him, half of the country probably hates him. 
but he's an ex-president, so it was a good way of sending a signal to the country that, hey, this guy, Vitalik, who might be might as well be the Einstein of the 21st century, is in our country. And that was a very a great thing that he, you know, we were able to give this signal to the country too. So the country learns about Ethereum. And, and so and Ethereum can discover how passionate Argentina is about this technology. When Vitalik realizes that, you know, he might be having somewhat of a Mick Jagger status in, in Argentina, he tells me, I'd like to do a conference. So this is not like an exclusive trip just for me because I'm realizing, you know, how much people are talking about my visit here. So let's do a conference. I talked with the government of Buenos Aires. We found a beautiful place for a thousand people and we make the flyer. We announced the, the conference and in three minutes, three minutes, the conference sold out. Whoa. Completely sold out. Uh, a thousand people, a thousand people. Whoa. Two, two years, you know, we, we announced this on a Sunday. On Tuesday, we did the conference. The mayor of the city came. He had a private meeting with Vitalik. This is a guy that maybe uh, could be the next president of the country. All of the thousand people that bought their ticket, that got their ticket, they were there. Packed room. Everyone wanted to be there. People complaining on Twitter that they couldn't get tickets. And Vitalik gave one of you know his fantastic keynotes. We did an interview on stage to him. He's such an easy person to interview because you ask him one thing and he will always give you at least three paragraphs uh, describing uh, his line of thought. And the people there, these 1,000 you know, young people that came to, 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 to see him live, they were all, you know, probably between 15, 17, 18 to, to 28, 29, like very, very young. And they were fascinated by what's going on. Like I remember going outside to, to say hi to some friends and suddenly I find myself giving a, a soup conference inside the conference, like a crowd builds are, uh, around me and as we start, people start asking me questions and, and everyone was so thankful, was so happy, was so in disbelief that Vitalik came to Argentina. Uh, they couldn't believe it. You know, people were so appreciative of that. When we went to the slam, we went to a school that was actually founded by Pope Francis. And in this school, some students came. And again, this is 16, 17 years old. And one student came with questions written, uh, handwritten in a paper. And the questions were about Vitalik's career. He asked him, well, when, when did you start? How did you start writing for Bitcoin Magazine? And this guy that grew up in a slum, that grew up in a disenfranchised section of the city, definitely with much less possibilities than, you know, 90% of the people living in Buenos Aires, he knew everything about Vitalik. Uh, he knew, you know, he was into Ethereum. He was already uh, learning to mine cryptocurrency. And that, to me, speaks so greatly about the inclusive capacities of crypto and the youth is, is like, gets it like this. They, they you know, I, I feel this, uh, this fractal sensation in, in my own, uh, you know, whenever I go to DevCon or whenever I go to uh, an ETH event, I know I'm being respected for being the old guy around. I'm 38. Uh, it's, it's the 20 year olds that are explaining me uh, roll-ups or are explaining me, you know, whatever is the next thing. You know, it's always the youth that teach you about what's up and coming with technology. And uh, it's so important to pay attention to, to the youth. And in Argentina, thankfully, I think that the crypto virus is very, very strong right now. And, and a lot of these kids will grow up, they will start up things, they will create stuff. 
that will surprise us. So I think that this legitimate youth and not the youth from the 70s is what needs to happen for, for, for the country to, to change. Will, will, will it lead to a, you know, a more individualistic society or a more market-loving, free market-loving society? Maybe it's a bit of an antidote to a lot of the socialist leanings that uh, you will also find in Argentina, but which is also a consequence of the, the rampant inequality. The inequality is in your face there. Uh, if you work in Buenos Aires, you will find an entire family you know, going through the dustbin or through the trash. Uh, and it's such a sad image. And, and you, it's an image that is everywhere. So I guess it's not that we're left-wing or right-wing. We're a bit of dreaming of an utopia uh, or some kind of powerful idea that can really change things for us. And my, my sensation is that if that idea exists somewhere, it's definitely in the, in the realm of information technology and digital stuff. Like it's not in the realm of legacy, ideological, you know, economic schools, but really, you know, the hackers, it's the, it's the cypherpunk manifesto, it's the declaration of independence of cyberspace. That's the literature. It's the sovereign individual. It's the infinite machine. It's, uh, that's the literature that, that I, I think is really bringing new ideas. And it's in information technology. Uh, it's in with bits uh, that the only thing that I've seen throughout my entire life that has really impacted people's lives for the better. And I think that the youth gets this. I have no choice but, but to be an optimist also. As an entrepreneur, you have to be an optimist. But uh, what I've seen in Buenos Aires recently caught me by surprise in a, in a significant way. And it made me feel very proud. It was the proudest moment of my career uh, to have you know, my hero, Vitalik Buterin, our hero, Vitalik Buterin visiting my country for the first time, for him to realize that my country loves him and for my country to realize that this is for real and it's so powerful that the entire political spectrum has to meet with him. It's like, I have never felt any problem. I, I don't know if I will ever be able to surpass an experience like that, but it speaks greatly about what's going on there and, and the potential it has to, to change things. I think perhaps one of the best reasons to be happy about that is that because Vitalik is very morally grounded, um, he's a realist, but he's also an optimist at the same time, and he definitely sees the potential of technology for good, but he will never go out and like say something ridiculous or crazy just to like drum up a crowd. He's always very pragmatic and effective, and the fact that like so much of Argentina is seeing Vitalik pragmatism and then falling in line behind that rather than some sort of populist leader that's drumming up a crowd or, you know, some sort of like Trumpian figure who knows how to like, you know, play the media. Vitalik's the opposite of that. And people are, are falling behind him as well. That gets me really, really optimistic because we need that in today's world. There's a lot of ways to drum up society to get them to do the things that you want. And Vitalik's not doing that at all. And people still like resonate with his message and, and you know fall in line behind his leadership. That's why he's like a monk, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. In Argentina, I caught the attention that he always went everywhere with uh, wearing sandals and socks. He went to meet the president like that. He went to meet the minister of economy <laughs> like that. It's a uh, and it's like that's the most cypherpunk thing I can think of. Like he's so grounded. He's so you know if money shows the real face of who you are. The real face of Vitalik is amazing. 
because he had all kinds of offers in Argentina. You, you, you can imagine that when people found out he was there, I got uh, invitations for him to go on a private jet to the Patagonia or to go to Punta del Este uh, in a helicopter to meet you know, this powerful guy or to go, you know, he got all kinds of fancy invitations. And he got, you know, the opportunity to visit a slum uh, and to meet, you know, how the, the working class in Argentina really lives. And he chose to go to the slum. He chose to go to, to the school there, to talk to the people there. The people were, you know, obviously fascinated by this, this guy that com looks completely different than anyone else in Argentina, like Vitalik as a Russian. He obviously uh, caught some uh, people's attention. But you, know, you, you saw just little kids approaching him and asking, where do you come from and what do you do? And him very politely, in Spanish actually, we, we were all surprised that he actually speaks very good Spanish, uh, explaining you know, who he was and what he does, asking questions about how people live there, how families live there, thinking about you know, learning uh, about these social challenges uh, or these social dramas that people are facing. And he wanted to see that. He didn't want none of the fancy programs. I, I remember every day I, I sent Vitalik a couple of options. You have this, this, and that. What do you want to do? He chose where, where he heart uh, it really is. And I think he, he actually said something with, in the first meeting we had with, with President Macri. He, he said that one of the problems with technology is that it's probably easier to generate innovation in the information uh, spectrum than in the physical world. Uh, because it's easier to iterate and change things with digital bits and information than to iterate and change things in the physical world. So a lot of investment and a lot of uh, innovation is software only, and it's software to make better software. He said that you know this leads to a situation where you create a society where you have these incredible billionaires uh, creating a lot of wealth, but at the same time, you have a lot of junkies, uh, you know, and, and homeless people who are, you know, doing her shooting heroin in the streets, and you know the wealth side is completely blinded by what's happening on this on this social side, where you know, a lot of people are getting left behind and living, you know, through a tragedy in the very same city where this happens. And he used San Francisco as, as an example. I lived in San Francisco, and you know, I saw that. You know, you walk through the tenderloin, you will see it. For him, he said, you know, it's very important to support projects uh, that are being built on Ethereum that make sure that they impact in reality, that have an impact in the real world. I guess that's why he, he's kind of been talking more about, a, you know, let's, DeFi is fun, DeFi is great, but there's, let's try to think about, you know, the social Ethereum, how, how Ethereum can help society at large. And I guess that's why he got uh, interested into Proof of Humanity and UBI, I think that this is a, a, a very positive aspect of his leadership, that he cares and he's paying attention to stuff like this, to the social aspect. It's, it's a wonderful thing, very uncommon. You know, he's the, the most, the strangest uh, billionaire I have ever met, <laughs> for sure. I want to go into that a little bit more. Of all of the startups that you've talked about in Argentina, the crypto startups that you are saying have completely beat out all the fintech startups that haven't been using crypto. What are the use cases that are really the most successful in Argentina? Is it payments? What are the successful crypto startups in Argentina? What are the utility and uses that people really, really need? So the fintech sector in general has been 
uh, pushing a strategy of uh, bank inclusion through uh, generating a lot of debit cards and credit cards. And digital banks have become a phenomenon of the last couple of years. Among these digital banks, there's uh, one of these banks, uh, I will not say, you know, well, I can say the name, it's called Lemon, uh, which really have a huge impression on me. The guys of Lemon are, they are doing, you know, a fintech company that works as an exchange, but you, they are issuing credit cards where you will get cashback with crypto. You will get your cashback benefits with Ether or with BTC or, you know, with any ERC20 token that's out there. That's actually support a lot of tokens. Because of this, they are beating the entire competition. The whole sector is growing. Fintech is definitely growing significantly. And there's a couple of unicorn companies already playing in the, in the industry there. Uh, the consumer, you know, the people that want their, their credit card to buy their groceries, to, you know, make their things uh, online, to, to do e-commerce, are those that actually are crypto native companies uh, that have this. This might be a small feature. But if you can you know, accumulate a little bit of crypto every day, that's a much more desirable than accumulating a little bit of Argentine pesos every day. It's a huge difference. So it's uh, the startups that enable savings yeah. that really get adopted quickly in Argentina? Yeah, they enable savings. And, and because of that, they open the gates for people to start experimenting with DeFi products, uh, with NFTs, uh, with DAOs have been growing a lot. You know, There's a lot of interesting communities you know, I've seen the growth in the the, the demand for developers, the, the demand for people that know Solidity, like companies like Open Zeppelin, Decentraland, Kleros, uh, you know, have, have created a school of training developers. So you, now we have a lot of people learning how to build smart contracts, how to build, you know, into these networks. And obviously these people uh, are, you know, also users. And ultimately I would say that you know, these this new fintech credit card companies that give cashback with, you know, in crypto, they're, they're you know, destroying the competition. I, I'm, you know, <laughs> I've seen some numbers and the numbers are wild, very impressive. And it's barely getting started. Like it's, this is just the beginning. So the landscape in a few years from now uh, might be very different. Today, Buenos Aires does feel a little bit like a cypherpunk utopia, like high inflation, terrible government, but uh, the youth clandestinely, you know, using crypto for absolutely everything. Like another small story of Vitalik's visit, like there was one morning that Vitalik went to a coffee shop at 9.30 a.m. And the coffee shop opened at 10 a.m. So Vitalik was like, okay, it's closed. Let's find a different place. And from the inside, the owner comes out running and says, Vitalik, Vitalik, don't leave, please. I will open the shop for you. Come, stay. And Vitalik mentioned me that he was even able to pay with Ether for his coffee and his uh, croissant or whatever he had. Like those things are showing me that, wow, you know, this is the the owner of a bar, a random bar in the neighborhood of Palermo that suddenly, you know, got starstruck when he saw Vitalik open the shop for him. You know, he was already able to receive Ether for, for the coffee. It's not like it's a strange thing. Uh, a lot of shops are accepting uh, Tether or, you know, some kind of stable coin. A lot of shops asking the question, can I pay with crypto? It's no longer like, uh, oh, here comes the nerd asking about crypto. No, it used to be like that. You know, <laughs> when I did it seven, eight years ago, I remember, hey, let, can I pay you with some Bitcoin? You know, uh, I remember doing that in some places and teaching people. But now it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Pay, you know, pay with Ether or with Bitcoin or whatever. That, that thing becoming commonplace 
is, is a very, very positive thing. How has Ethereum's fees impacted how Argentines have used Ethereum? Because if Vitalik is paying for coffee using the L1 blockchain, I don't know how he sent Ether to this coffee shop owner, but you know, if it was on the L1 or if it was on an L2, and, and overall, how has Argentina navigated Ethereum fees? I didn't ask him that, but fees are a problem, of course, are a problem. A lot of people actually, I, I hate to say this, but a lot of people are using some of the like BSC, Binance Smart Chain, or like some of the more centralized EVMs out there. Pretty much EVMs, I have to say. When we talked to Vitalik, uh, when we recorded with him, he said that the majority of crypto use is just using Binance.com or Binance the exchange not even Binance Smart Chain, just like transferring to each other using Binance. Yeah, there's still a lot of education that needs to happen for people to be able to, to really own their keys. Binance has a strong presence in the country. You, you will see billboards and advertisement of Binance all over Buenos Aires. I think we'll probably see more adoption of rollups. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, some of the side chains, but definitely some of the other blockchains like BSC and stuff like that helps people to deal with fees. Like a $10 fee in Argentina is a lot of money. Like consider this a country where the minimum wage is $400 or something like that. So $10 paying, and $10 used to be like the standard fee for sending Ether just some six months ago. Probably now it's even a little bit worse. So uh, people are relying on alternative chains, but this makes people, you know, it's, it makes people resilient and knowledgeable and, you know, easily capable of you know bridging among many chains and the users are learning the ropes uh, they are learning the ropes of how to manage a world with you know multiple chains or you know a world with rollups which i'm sure is going to be the end game situation we will we will find in a couple of years from now what about private key management are people trying to learn how to manage their own private keys or are they just sticking with custodial solutions i think many are probably using still custodial solutions or you know uh, trading with inside the exchanges, like you mentioned, but uh, that there comes the responsibility of us, uh, the the developers or the, the most knowledgeable voices in the community, to you know not your keys, not your crypto, uh, and to keep on insisting through social media, through different channels. I I do a, a podcast in Spanish. Surprisingly, it's now a top five podcast in Spotify in, in this, for Spanish-speaking audiences. Congrats, congrats. Uh, so it's interesting to see that there's a growing audience of, of listeners that want to learn about crypto in Spanish. And through media like that, I think we can we have to the responsibility to help people really learn how to use this technology properly. I'm confident that people get it and, and will learn and, and will adopt best practices uh, for sure. So you've brought up... Um proof of humanity and UBI a few times. So I, I want to go into that. But also at the very beginning of this conversation, you talked about how one of the big problems that Argentina faced was that the government just kept on electing to print money and just hand money out as a solution without really considering the long-term consequences of these choices. So how do you square those two things? You've seen a government print money and have that not work but uh, you're also interested in universal basic income via proof of humanity. Uh, how do you square those two things? And can you also just uh, explain for the listeners what uh, proof of humanity is? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So proof of humanity is a decentralized uh, identity service built on Ethereum, built on the layer one, where you have to generate a proof of yourself. It's a small video. You are not required to use your real name or legal name, nothing like that. And once you submit the proof, you need to get a vouch from someone that has already been proven. 
and you have to put a deposit that you will get back if no one challenges your proof. If your proof looks similar to someone else, or you have already done a proof before, or you look like a deep fake, you might get challenged, and that challenge goes to an arbitration system that is uh, Kleros, that will try to find a, a juror randomly, and that will decide ultimately whether or not the profile is a duplicate or is a, a deep fake or a robot or something like that. And Kleros allows for multiple appealing rounds, so it works, works very well. Proof of humanity is really thinking about identity in a post-Facebook world. You know, Facebook has centralized identity in a dramatic way, leading to a surveillance capitalism, to manipulation, to polarization of society. Uh, the advertising business model combined with centralization has led to, you know, modern democracy looking really, really weird. Whereas, uh, so thinking about identities is very important. Edward Snowden said, uh, the one vulnerability being exploited across all systems is identity. You know, identity is the mother of all battles. So understanding how we can formalize human identity, ideally in the most privacy-preserving way, but also in a way where you have absolute certainty that there are no duplicates in the registry and there's not an, an entity uh, clandestinely managing multiple identities. Like uh, having that kind of permissionless ability to audit the registry is extremely important in order to keep the registry decentralized. And proof of humanity achieves this through a combination of game theory and leveraging systems like Kleros. Uh, we launched this in March 2021, so the project is not, uh, not even a one year old. But in this process, we uh, have uh, almost 15,000 uh, identities or humans registered uh, in proof of humanity. And once you become registered, you start accruing UBI tokens. So this is a standard ERC20 token that you start getting, it gets streamed into your wallet. So you will start getting fractions of UBI every second or every block at the rate of one UBI per hour. So obviously the issuance of UBI is you know, very aggressive. It's 720 UBIs per month per human. Right now the, the token is trading around 15 cents, which is roughly around $150 worth of UBI per month. You know, price goes up, goes down. It's a free market, so it has supply and demand. The supply side of the equation obviously is tied to every new human that emerges in, in proof of humanity. The challenging side is the demand side, right? How, how we get the whales or people accumulating this token. We don't, you know, monetary policy, you know, monetary schools of thought indicate that the more you print, you know, what we talked at the beginning of our interview, that will lead to inflation and losing value of the currency. And, you know, I'm not foreign to that idea at all. I think that the, the, the interesting thing of what we can build with, with UBI is, you know, this is a token that simply has one rule. Every human will accumulate uh, this token at the rate of one UBI per hour. That's the rule. Now, as engineers, now we must work with this constraint. Like uh, we must figure out how with this constraint we can make sure that the value being received by the people in Proof of Humanity is, is the, the highest it can possibly be. In that regard, there are you know, a wide range of ideas out there that have been implemented that were really surprising in this first year. I remember on a, on a Twitter thread, someone said, uh, why don't you do an, an endowment model like Ivy League universities in the US? Harvard has an investment fund with $500 million. 
they invest that money in technology companies, bonds, stock, whatever, and they generate a 10% yield every year. And it's that 10% that funds the university, the, the extra $50 million you know, that, have, that are you know, sustaining the university. The endowment is, is kept being invested in, in good assets, in good stuff. If I wanted to do that in the traditional world, I probably should be born in a place where I can go to Harvard and get a lot of connections and you know, have the right people and talk to the right, you know, become very powerful, and maybe I can pull something that up in traditional finance. On DeFi, I can just you know, talk to my friend Emiliano in Italy who contributes to Wired and figure out, hey, can we do a vault where we use deposit Ether and we generate some yield by lending that Ether to the market and we use the yield to burn UBI? And from, from a Twitter thread to completion, it took three months. And we launched these vaults where you know, uh, people who are holding ETH, they can deposit the ETH into the vault, or some people that are holding stable coins, they can deposit stable coins into the vault. This will get lended through the wire protocol, will generate some yield, uh, some profits out of the lending process, and we use half of the yield to buy and burn UBI tokens. Uh, and that's just what was one of the first applications that tries to burn uh, UBI at scale. There's now a, an interesting uh, group of teams, different teams, trying to do NFT games. When you transact or when you trade the NFT, a percentage of the transaction goes to burn UBI tokens. So suddenly thinking about video games that, are, that have purpose, that are not just entertainment, uh, it's a way of like, okay, if I spend a lot of time playing this video game, at least the more I play, I am burning, helping to burn UBI. So the more I play, I'm helping to everyone that is receiving universal basic income over Ethereum, and it breeds a little bit more purpose or less guilt <laughs> when you find yourself playing a video game. So and there are a lot of NFT projects that are looking into that direction. I'm actually contributing to one of those that I haven't announced yet, and it's super exciting, like finally figuring out, okay, maybe if this game works out and it, if it reaches significant scale, the whole play-to-earn movement, when you plug a, a video game to burning UBI tokens, you're applying purpose to that video game. You're applying you know, something that has a social impact and benefits people's lives. The stories I've heard from people receiving UBI are amazing. I, I heard stories from people that were able to, when Vitalik, uh, he, he bought almost 2 million UBI tokens and burned them. He did this with the Shiba Inu tokens he received. The fact that he coordinated the Shiba Inu to burn UBI was like a, a very impressive thing to see happen. And when that happened, I started receiving stories from people that, you know, they were able to afford the plane tickets to visit their parents after two years of pandemic, or who, who were able to afford the, their student debt, and, you know, they got this huge problem out of, out of the way, or they were able to, I remember a person who told me, that, who thanked me the fact that UBI gets streamed and not given in discrete allocations because uh, her partner was addicted to gambling. So the fact that we didn't give all of the money at once, but just tiny bits of the money in real time was a feature that uh, she liked uh, how the protocol works. So I heard a lot of stories like this. And there's a, a power user of UBI who lives in La Habana, Cuba. And he has is himself and his entire family are on proof of humanity. And he's making probably $150, $200 worth of UBI per month in a country where the minimum wage or the maximum wage actually is $20 a month. So this guy is making, you know, 
he's, he's putting food on the table for his family. And, you know, we have a lot of users in Cuba, in Venezuela. It's the beauty of, of decentralization of, and not working with, you know, the traditional banking system. You know, these are all small stories to like minimal stories that are emerging out of the community. But I think that, you know, the more we can coordinate with other protocols, you know, we have been talking with the Optimism team. Optimism is using uh, one, 1% of its fees uh, to support public goods on Ethereum, and they committed a million dollars into that. The, the Optimism community used quadratic voting to choose what public, public goods they will support. Proof of Humanity ended up being there, so we received uh, funds from, from Optimism that can help burn UBI tokens. I think that the effort is not dependent on us, the Proof of Humanity community alone, but the more we can plug the UBI burner smart contract into other protocols, other games, uh, other DeFi solutions, a small contribution to burning UBI or to simply buying UBI, it doesn't need to be burned always, but a small contribution to that impacts all of the people registered in Proof of Humanity. Yeah, of course, the supply side is, is, is clearly gives us a challenge, but I think that as a community, we can build solutions that can can help burn and, and reduce supply at scale. And when that happens, you will immediately notice how it's impacting people's lives. I saw that the day after Vitalik burned, my inbox exploded in people with thank you notes and saying how fantastic this was and that they will keep on holding or they keep, will keep on you know building. Obviously, you know it's an, an experimental thing. Everything is a prototype. Even Ethereum is a prototype. We're all learning here, but with UBI and Proof of Humanity, it's been almost one year. Almost $50 million worth of UBI transactions happened in this year. Of course, maybe a lot of people were trading and speculating. Uh, you know, it's a free market. But uh, with 15,000 people registered on Proof of Humanity, it's probably one of the largest, if not the largest, universal basic income experiment happening right now. And to me, that's mind-blowing that Ethereum can achieve this. Uh, because when we talk about you know, Ethereum, the social Ethereum, social Ethereum is not going to be like social media, which, you know, Twitter and Facebook gave everyone a voice and we know we all know what social media did to the world and it's probably, you know, more on the side of fantastic things than on the side of bad things. Like social media has been incredible in the last decade. But when you think about the social blockchain, it's not media. It's not media. Social blockchain is people's money, people's pockets. It's people's ability to buy bread, to put, buy food, to, to you know, pay their expenses. So when social Ethereum emerges and, and, and matures, it can really address very big questions or very big challenges that the world is facing. One of these big challenges is poverty. A lot of people live under the poverty line, the vast majority of the planet. Uh, in Argentina, I grew up facing this reality every day, uh, where half of the people you see in the city are suffering, are living under very bad conditions. And if there's a technology that can help address that and put some money to people uh, so they make, we make sure that everyone is able to meet their needs, then you know it's a very powerful thing. It's not just, wow, how much wealth this thing can create. You know, If you become wealthy alone, uh, it's not really wealth. Like wealth is really when you, know, you are able to impact the community, you are able to impact society at large. With Ethereum, I think we can do that. And like to me, it's a scary thought, but in the next couple of decades, you know, end poverty with crypto. Like, that, that should be a fantastic goal that Ethereum could address. And, and that speaks of what the social capacities of the network can unleash. 
Another incredible thing is that it's a level playing field technology. Someone in Cuba will get the same amount of UBI than someone in Connecticut or in London or in, in Beijing. It helps to level up the playing field. Uh, it's a borderless, it's global. We're not asking for identity information related to the passport or to your government. We don't give a shit about that. It's humanity first. And I think there's a, 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 an enormous community around the globe that is willing to support the experiments with UBI. If we need to wait for the governments to do this stuff, it's going to take a long time. The great thing about crypto is that we don't need to wait for anyone. And I think that's a, that's a very promising thing. Like if Ethereum and crypto as a technology can help change the world like that, then it's not just a, a technology innovative bubble. It's, it's something way more profound, probably even revolutionary. I want to ask, um, what about crypto makes you optimistic? But I think you just answered it. <laughs> <laughs> what else about crypto makes you optimistic? You know, there's a, a physicist called uh, David Deutsch, who I love. He's a great thinker from Oxford. He's the father of quantum computing. He was, the, I think, one of the original authors of the original paper that described the quantum computer. And his request of the recent years is... He's trying to change the language of physics. He says, like, you know, every single equation in physics is the dynamical particles, particles moving around either into the future, into the past. And this is just a very reductionist model of describing the universe. And he has this theory of, he calls it constructor information theory, where he says that information theory has always been uh, shielded from physics. Like, whatever happens inside computers, uh, it happens inside computers and the physical world is entirely a different thing. And the world of physics is, is completely blind to, to the world of information theory. So David Deutsch, he comes with this theory called constructor information theory, where he, he says that we have to change every equation. We have to start thinking of, about the world on whether things are possible or impossible and, and use you know, this analogy uh, to describe the universe under more information theoretic uh, concepts rather than dynamical equations that had led to this gridlock of quantum physics and general relativity not understanding each other. This philosophy of you know thinking about things are possible or impossible, an outcome of that that David Deutsch, I heard him once mention in a lecture, he says, well, anything that is not explicitly prohibited by the laws of nature is possible. It's not a matter uh, of if it can be done or not, but a matter of how we will get there. But eventually, it's something that it's possible. And he argues that optimism is like the gravitational pull of this idea. Like, if something is not explicitly forbidden by nature, then there is a way. If history shows that we have always found a way, we humans, you know, with the industrial age or in the enlightenment or in the electricity or information, we keep finding a way to get there. Maybe this century we'll find a way to get to Mars. Maybe we'll, you know, but we keep finding a way. So, you know, optimism might be much more ingrained into nature than we can think of. If there's uh, something that uh, really has impacted my life and gave me an overdose of optimism was meeting the Ethereum community globally. I remember very well when I went to my first DevCon in Prague. Uh, you know, I was still a bit shy of getting into Ethereum, coming from Bitcoin, many years of Bitcoin, you know, maximalism. I know the feeling. I've been there. But when I discovered the 
a community that it was so pluralistic, so diverse, so open-minded, experimenting and trying out innovations and fuck it, we're not going to just change money. We're going to change identity. We're going to change voting. We're going to change uh, human coordination. We're going to change every single institution thinkable with this technology. That's uh, like an oasis of uh, optimism all over the place. Uh, layer zero is the, the, you know, the secret ingredient. Whenever I lose some of my optimism because I'm human and you know we have our days, uh, I try to find when, when the next Ethereum conference is happening where in the world, I make sure I hang out you know a couple of days with my friends there and realize, you know, holy shit, where yeah, this is still happening. The dream is you know alive and kicking. And the best part is that it's you know it's still the very, very early days. I'm pretty sure about that. So you have to keep on building. And it's, it's very hard not to be optimistic when you are surrounded by so many bright minds, generous people, and with great leaders like Vitalik himself. He's probably the ultimate example of, of what leadership means uh, in the 21st century. We are just lucky. He's alive, he's here, and he's uh, hanging out with us, helping us dream about the future. Oh, Santi, everything you just said, I absolutely resonate with because it was the infectious positivity of ETH Denver that pulled me into Ethereum in the first place. So I definitely resonate with that. And also my pinned tweet on my Twitter account is, says, Optimists shall inherit the earth. I think, uh, I think we're definitely aligned there. Santi, thank you for coming on Layer Zero and telling us uh, your thoughts and your story. David, a pleasure talking to you as always. And uh, yeah, well, hope, hopefully I'll see you in, in some ETH conference uh, anywhere in the world soon. Certainly. Santi, if people want to follow you on Twitter and also learn about Proof of Humanity, where should they go? I'm Santi City on Twitter, Telegram, uh, whatever, everywhere. And uh, Proof of Humanity, at Proof of Humanity on Twitter, Telegram. On Telegram, we're actually Proof Humanity. <laughs> That's the English uh, Telegram channel, and there's many channels in other languages. And proofofhumanity.id. And democracy.earth. Actually, on democracy.earth, you will have all of the links to Proof of Humanity and UBI. Uh, the Telegram, Discord, Snapshot, it's all there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Santi. My pleasure.